Our sermon text this morning is James 5, verses 13 to 18. So, these are the words of God. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we declare with the psalmist, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Lord, your holy word is a wonderful treasure. Thank you for giving it to us. It is a gift from your hand. Lord, we ask you now, re-speak the truth of your word to our hearts. Illuminate your word to our hearts by your Holy Spirit who is here with us. Guide us, lead us, shepherd us, apply your word to us clearly and specifically that we all might leave changed. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus and everyone said together, amen, amen. All of us at various points in time encounter situations where we just don't know what to do. We encounter situations where we have tried all we can try to fix the problem in our family or with our health, or finances, or something else. But still the problem remains, and there seems to be no good solution. In such situations, it can at times be prudent to seek wise counsel, perhaps the counsel of a pastor. Not that, uh, that pastors have all the answers, They certainly don't. However, pastors have been called by the ascent of Christ 
to shepherd and care for the flock. So there is a unique grace that often comes through them. I mentioned several weeks ago that on March 30th, a long-time family friend of mine passed away. His name is Alan Redrup. I grew up around Alan as he was the assistant pastor who helped my father plant Covenant Fellowship Church in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania, several decades ago. One thing that marked my dear friend Alan is that he was a wise counselor. And he was, he was well known for this. Alan was known for his ability to speak sympathetically, insightfully, and wisely from God's Word into various situations that people faced. He was such an effective counselor, in fact, that even during a long season, when he had stepped out of vocational pastoral ministry, people would regularly seek Alan out for counsel. For one summer, during this time in Alan's life, when I was in college, I worked as an intern at the same IT company where Alan worked, albeit we were in different departments. And I remember uh, the first several weeks of this internship, this job, were really hard for me as I immediately, basically from day one, encountered some difficult relational dynamics with a supervisor who didn't really want an intern at all, but was assigned one who was extremely eager to learn. And that would be yours truly. (laughs) That'd be me. I was quite perplexed and did, did not know how to handle this situation. So what did I do? Well, you guessed it. One day when I arrived at work, I was passing by Alan's office to get to my office. His door was open, and I thought, I'm going to ask my pastor what he thinks I should do. So I said, hey, Alan, you got a minute? Of course, he he graciously said, sure. So I went into his office, closed the door, explained the situation to Alan, and minutes later, I emerged from his office a changed young man. (laughs) I emerged from his office feeling a lot better, the weight of the world off my shoulders, (laughs) and having a much better idea of what I needed to do in order to honor God and to act wisely in that particular situation. Alan didn't fix my problem by any means, uh, but he did give me wise counsel, and I applied it. And actually, over the summer, the situation improved dramatically, and it ended up being a really positive internship experience for me. Thank God for faithful pastors who serve, uh, even when they're not on duty. Alan was a godly man. He was a wise pastor. I'm looking at Jimmy Jones, and he knows what I'm saying is true because he was the Jones's pastor for a period of time as well. He was a godly man and a wise pastor, and so was James. So was James who wrote this epistle. James, the Lord's brother, wrote this letter 
to believers in desperate need of wise counsel. You'll recall from earlier sermons in the series, James wrote this epistle to Jewish Christians that had scattered from the city of Jerusalem due to persecution, intense persecution that was taking place in the city of Jerusalem. They were most likely former members of the Jerusalem church, these people he was writing to, of which, if you read Acts 15, James was basically the lead pastor. These people were forced to leave their homes, leave their businesses, leave their family members, because in Jerusalem, the persecution was right on top of them. And their lives were in grave danger. If you want to get a real good sense of the context, read Acts 8, you know, with Stephen's martyrdom, and then Paul was standing by approving of the execution, and then the Jerusalem church scattered due to the persecution that was taking place. So if you want to get a good sense of the context of James, go back and read those sections. You'll see what these, what these people were facing and what they had fled from. Their lives... Uh, before fleeing, were in grave, they were in grave danger. So just imagine that, if that was you and your family being forced to leave. Imagine the fear. Imagine the trauma. Imagine the emotional pain. By the time this letter was written, these believers had for a time been settling in new locations and in new churches along with others who had experienced the same thing. And in these new locations, uh, life was not easy. From this letter, we can gather that many of these Christians were poor, chapter 1, verse 9, oppressed, chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, and enduring painful trials of various kinds, chapter 1, verse 2. These people... These dear brothers and sisters in the Lord were sorely tried, exhausted, and overwhelmed. And as I needed Alan's pastoral counsel that day years ago, they even more so, given the gravity of their situation, needed wise counsel from a wise pastor. Who cared about them deeply? In this epistle, as we have seen, James counsels his friends on a variety of topics relevant to their current situation. And here in our passage today, James provides further counsel on how to respond to these intense trials that they were facing as they were settling in these new communities. James' main pastoral burden... And this particular text was to help his first readers and all Christians to understand that when you suffer, when difficulty comes your way, when you're tired and perplexed and not sure exactly how to respond, there is one thing you can know for certain. God is calling you to do. There may be many things you don't know, but there is one thing you can be certain God is calling you to do. He is calling you to pray. He's calling you to pray. 
More simply put, the main point of our passage is suffering is a divine invitation to pray. Suffering is a divine invitation. It's an invitation from God. God himself to pray. I trust as we go along, you will see how this isn't my opinion, but the text itself bears this out. Let us now consider a survey of the text. In verse 13, James asks the rhetorical question, is there any among you suffering? The word suffering here refers to the trials of various kinds James speaks of in chapter 1. It refers to the broad range of ways people suffer in a very fallen and broken world. As scholar Doug Moo notes, the word has the basic sense of experience difficulty. So James asks, is any among you suffering? Is any among you experiencing difficulty? James says, well, if so, and I know most of you are, then here's how God would have you to respond. Let him pray. James then asks, middle of verse 13, is anyone cheerful? If so, James says, let him sing praise. The idea here is, even when life is going well and you're feeling joyful, the response, even in that situation, is still Godward. The right response is not to take God's blessing for granted, but instead to praise God, to lift our voices in song to God. For He, He is the source of every good blessing. Of course, songs of praise are also prayers to God. So the theme of prayer continues throughout the passage. In verse 14, James goes on to address his readers who are sick, those who are ill and suffering with sickness. He says should call the elders of the church to pray for them, to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. While it may seem odd to us, the practice of anointing a person with oil is drawn from the Old Testament. For example, when priests were ordained into the ministry, they were anointed with oil. They were symbolically set aside for the special, unique work of the Lord. And likewise, when elders anoint the sick with oil, they symbolically set that individual aside and pray for the special healing work of God by the Holy Spirit in that person's life. So elders anoint a person with oil, and then verse 15 says that the prayer of faith offered by the elders on behalf of the sick person will save that person. In other words, the prayer of faith will result in healing. This, of course, does not mean that in every instance God always heals in response to the prayer of faith. The apostle Paul himself, you'll recall, prayed in faith for God to remove his thorn in the flesh, which was most likely a physical 
ailment of some sort. And we know the Lord didn't heal Paul, did he? But instead said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made known in your weakness. Scripture is clear. God does indeed invite us to pray for the sick in faith. In faith, knowing that God can heal and often delights to heal. Even so, the Bible is equally clear that not all are healed. And God is sovereign over who is healed and over who is not healed. And if someone is not healed, we need to be clear. That doesn't therefore mean that the person necessarily lacks faith. Or has sinned in some way. That said, at the end of verse 15, James does address the specific situation where it is abundantly clear that someone's sickness is, in fact, the direct result of their sin. In that situation, James invites the person to, verse 16, you can glance down there, he invites them to confess their sin to other believers. And then for those other believers to pray for that person that they might be healed. To be clear, um, I don't think verse 16 is about going on some kind of sin hunt if you find yourself ill, trying to figure out if you have some sin that God is now disciplining you for or punishing you for because you have this illness. I don't think that is what James is talking about here. I believe James is inviting people who have a high degree of certainty that their illness is a direct consequence of their own personal sin to confess those sins to others, to their friends in the church, before then receiving prayer from them for healing. So, for example, the lifelong alcoholic who may suffer from poor liver function. That person has a high degree of certainty that their liver problems are a cause, are an effect of their alcoholism. They don't have to guess about that. In verse 16, James invites that person to confess their sin to other believers and then to receive prayer for healing. God is merciful. You see God's mercy here in this text. God is merciful and gracious. So even when a person's sickness is clearly, directly, and obviously the consequence of their own sin, wonderfully, that does not put them beyond the grace of the Lord Jesus. It does not put them beyond the grace of God's healing power. The end of verse 16 on through to the end of verse 18, speak to the power of prayer, the enormous power of prayer. The end of verse 16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has, what does it say? Say it out loud. Great power. Has great power as it is working. A righteous person here isn't a perfect person. Instead, The way I think James is reflecting on this, a righteous person is a believer. A righteous person is an imperfect person, righteous through Christ, who is seeking to faithfully live for the Lord. The prayer 
of one believer for another believer, James, encourages you and I, has great power. James goes on to illustrate the power of faith-filled prayer with a story drawn from 1 Kings chapter 17 to 18. In that story, you may recall, if you've read that in your Old Testament Bible reading program, <laughs> in that story, Elijah predicted a drought as a consequence of King Ahab and Israel's idolatry and rebellion against the Lord. James informs us that Elijah, a man like us, prayed for this drought. Prayed for this drought. And that God answered that prayer. It did not rain for three and a half years. In 1 Kings 18, following the famous story of Elijah's dramatic confrontation with the prophets of Baal, resulting in their destruction, Elijah prayed for rain and it poured. In this, Elijah is a model to us of faith-filled prayer. So we've considered an overview of the passage. I now want to offer you three encouragements uh, drawn from it. The first one is this. Dear brothers and sisters, see your suffering as a divine invitation to pray. See your suffering as an invitation from God, a divine invitation to pray. As we've seen in verse 13, James invites those who are suffering to pray. While that may seem like an obvious thing to do, most of us I think if we're honest, we'd have to acknowledge that prayer is not always, in every instance, our first response or even our main response to trial and difficulty. As many of you know from personal experience, there are times when trials and hardship can be very overwhelming emotionally. When things go wrong in our lives, and we encounter various painful trials that we never dreamed we would have to walk through, negative emotions tend to run very high. In these situations, we can feel discouragement, despondency, despair. We can feel grief, fear, Anger, or all of the above. And it can be easy when we feel negative emotions like this to cope in ways where the Lord is only a small part of the picture. Or worse, not part of the picture at all. Most people over time develop certain coping mechanisms. Certain habitual, instinctive responses to pain, to trial and difficulty. And these, these responses, uh, if you think about it, they can range from helpful, helpful responses on one hand to terribly unhelpful on the other. So you've got, uh, you know, going for a jog on one end of the spectrum that could very well be helpful, probably would be helpful 
to me at some point soon to go on a job. So you can have that as a response to difficulty. It's good, healthy. And then you have looking at immoral things on a smartphone on the other end of the spectrum, right, as a response to, to trial. Certainly not helpful, right? In fact, it's wrong. It's sinful to do that. The bottom line is whether, whether our particular coping mechanisms are helpful or not, Sinful or not, it is critical as believers that we always live with the awareness that no coping mechanism, no diversion, no hobby, no pleasure, no substance, no person can ever, ever replace the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Even when it comes to legitimate, God-given means of grace, we need to remember that those means of grace, which God has given us, they aren't God either. So doctors, counselors, friends, family, spouses, pastors, they are all God-given means of grace to us in suffering. But as you know, they can never ever replace the Lord. Thus, James' exhortation here that we see is is this. Is anyone among you suffering? What What do you do? Let him pray. Let him pray. The point here is unmistakable. And it's God's point to us. You can't miss it. God, by His Holy Spirit, through James, reminds us that our suffering, your suffering, my suffering, is first, above all, an invitation from God Himself to go to God. Our suffering is an invitation to draw near to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to experience Him. Your suffering is an invitation to experience God, His presence. His nearness, His comfort, His encouragement, His help. As the psalmist declares, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, God is the strength. He is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of what you well know. No person and no thing can replace God himself for you. No one ever, ever can replace the Lord. Wonderfully, this is so amazing to consider. Aren't you thankful? The blood of Christ shed for us has made 24-7 access to him possible. 
You don't have to wait to get God. Your suffering, my suffering, we can draw near and experience Him now. So may the Lord help us. May the Lord help us when we experience both mild and more severe forms of suffering to faithfully and regularly draw near to our Father in prayer, our Heavenly Father, and to receive what only He can provide. Second encouragement from the text. Pray in the context of your local church. Pray in the context of your local church. I want you to notice here the high degree of importance that James places in this passage on pastors and congregation members in the same local church praying, praying, praying together. (laughs) In verse 14, James exhorts those who are sick to call who to pray for them? The elders, right? Not just the elders, the elders of the church. That is the local church. Just a brief note here, um, as a church and a, and a denomination, Sovereign Grace, we see elder and pastors distinct terms describing the same office. So elders are pastors and pastors are elders. And in the New Testament, an elder by definition is an elder in and of a specific local church. So I may have ministerial credentials through sovereign grace, as does Jeremy, but biblically, we are functioning elders and pastors nowhere else but here in this church. So we have ministerial credentials, ordained elders, but what makes us pastors and elders is that we've been installed here, here. You make us pastors, and we have a responsibility to shepherd and care for all of you. So in verse 14, James expects the sick will call upon their local church elders, their local church pastors, men responsible before God for their spiritual well-being and care to come and to pray for them. In contrast with evangelical culture today where the role of ordinary local pastors is commonly devalued in favor of popular preachers online, this passage highlights the unique grace God intends to flow through local pastors to their congregation members. Not only that, it also highlights the unique grace that God intends to flow through the one another ministry of the local church. Sin should be confessed. The text says, please glance there, verse 16, to one another. Similarly, James says to church members, pray for one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. So it's not just pastors that are involved in the prayer for healing, but we pray for one another for healing. The lesson I believe for us is this, brothers and sisters. May we as Grace Community Church place a high value in particular on praying for one another and with one another. This is a lesson embedded right in the text. May we place a high value on praying for one another in grace and with one another. I'm grateful for how I, I see that already, how we as pastors see that already. Let this continue to be and be even more so in the days ahead an elevated priority in our midst. 
in our one-to-one relationships, in our small groups, in our Sunday gatherings. We, of course, have weekly men's and women's prayer meetings. In all of it, may the house of Grace Community Church be a house of prayer. There is indeed much grace that God has for us as a church, that God has for all of us as we continue to grow in taking things to the Lord in prayer and receiving back from Him what He alone can provide. Third encouragement drawn from the text. Don't underestimate the power. This is key. Don't underestimate the power of your ordinary prayers. If you're taking notes, that might be one to write down. Or write in the margin of your Bible. Don't underestimate the power of your ordinary prayers. The end of verse 16 through verse 18 provides some of the most wonderful encouragement I know in all of Scripture for ordinary people like us to expect God to move in response to our prayers of faith. In these verses, James uses the example of Elijah to motivate us. Elijah prayed for a drought. God answered that. He's up against Ahab and Jezebel and the enemies of God. He prays that there would be a drought. Lord, stop rain as a punishment for their rebellion. Stop the rain for three and a half years. It stopped. And then, later on, after the drought was supposed to be over, Elijah prayed for rain to come. And if you go to 2 Kings 18, it didn't just come. It wasn't like a little trickle. It, it poured. The rain came. So what's God's lesson for you and for me? Verse 16, here it is. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In other words, you flawed, imperfect, yet righteous in Christ, man or woman, (laughs) you can do this too. You can pray effective, powerful prayers as well. So we say, as I did when I'm writing this and thinking through this, wait a minute, James, that's Elijah. You read Elijah's life. It was like miracle after miracle. (laughs) He raised somebody from the dead, That the widow's son died. He raised him from the dead. We can think like, okay, James, I see what you're saying, but I'm no Elijah. I'm just ordinary me. It's just me you're talking about. How can this be true of me? James' response to that objection is right there in verse 17. He anticipated it and he spoke to it. You think your prayers can't be effective? He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. (laughs) 
Translation, Elijah was just a normal, a normal guy. He was just a normal person of normal flesh and blood like you and me. So yes, you can pray effective, powerful prayers as well. Scholar Doug Moo writes insightfully on this verse. He says, prayer, James wants to make clear, is a powerful weapon in the hands of even the humblest believer. It does not require a super saint to wield it effectively. I ask you, are you, are you the humblest believer? I know I am. Praise God, according to his word, you qualify, and I qualify to wield the weapon of effective prayer. I think sometimes the reason we don't pray as much as we ought is because we don't think we qualify for powerful, effective prayer. But hear the word of the Lord. You're a son, a daughter of the living God, righteous in Jesus Christ, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. You qualify today, God says. Brothers and sisters, you don't need me to tell you. We are are in a very serious spiritual battle. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Sounds kind of serious to me. The Apostle Peter likewise says, our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a Roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's what he's seeking to do. In our lives, people we know, love. Even so, we need not, dear friends, be afraid. Because just as God was on Elijah's side against King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, God, by his Holy Spirit, is on our side. He is on your side and my side against the forces of evil and darkness. Hence, no weapon formed against us shall stand. Reformed and evangelical theologians commonly speak of how through Jesus' death and resurrection, the powers of the age to come, the powers of the heavenly age, through Jesus' death and resurrection, have broken in to this present age. We today live in the time and redemptive history of what's called the already but not yet. In other words, the kingdom of God has already come in part at the first coming of Christ. But not yet in fullness as it well will when Christ returns. Now, that's a teaching that could be unpacked. It's a longer teaching for another time. I briefly summarize it to make this very key point. Because through Christ, the powers of the age to come, 
the powers of the ages to come, have broken into this present age, we as ordinary, non-Old Testament prophet Christians can pray for and expect God to move mightily and powerfully. We can pray in faith. We can pray in faith as Elijah did, and expect Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in response to our prayers to set the captives free. To literally set people free from the dominion, the rule, and the power of our adversary, Satan. We can pray as ordinary believers. We can pray in faith for and expect God, not in our own power, but in the power and in the name of Jesus, we can expect Him in response to the prayer of faith to heal the lame and the blind and the sick. There is nothing in Scripture that would hinder us from praying prayers of faith for sick people, even people in severe sickness, to be healed. We can pray in faith and expect the power of God to be manifest in wonderful ways in our lives and in the lives of people around us. Again, we're not in in charge of what happens. God is sovereign over all things. Yet there is a tension in the Christian life. That is just there in Scripture. And we shouldn't try to avoid it, but rather live within it. The tension is, God calls us to pray in faith, trusting Him to move in powerful ways. We pray in faith. On the back side of that, if God doesn't move in the way that we hoped or dreamed or expected, we trust. He's sovereign. He's God. And I'm not. And some people think those two ideas are are polar opposites. In Scripture, God brings them together and just says, I call you to do both. Pray in faith. Pray in faith. Pray. F- Don't lose heart. Don't lose faith. Keep coming again and again with childlike faith. Pray in faith again and again for God to move in mighty ways. But you're not in control of it. Trust Him. Trust Him with whatever happens. That's what God invites us to do. Well, let's bring this home, and I would like to ask the band to to join me. This morning we've seen that suffering is a divine invitation to pray. Um, if Really, if there's nothing else you take home from today, take that. Suffering's a divine, it's an invitation from God to pray. View your suffering that way. Think of it that way. So are you suffering today? God's, God, through His Word, invites you to draw near to Him in prayer. And I encourage you, even today, to do just that. I remind you, in your suffering, in your sorrow, in your pain, don't bypass the Lord. Don't bypass the Lord for anyone or anything else. Don't go to someone else first. But in your pain, in your sorrow, in your suffering, first go to God. Go to Him. Draw near to your Savior. Cast your anxieties upon Him. And 
experience his presence, his nearness, his comfort upon your soul. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything, everything, everything to the Lord in prayer. We've seen this morning that God invites us to pray together. Pray together in the context of the church. So, uh, we're here. We're here together. For those who are able, why not take a few minutes after the service and let's be a church family and do what the text says and pray together. Let's pray in faith for healing. Is any among you sick? Let's anoint with oil those who are sick. Pray for healing. Other needs, big and small. Big and small. There's nothing too small. Let's take them. Let's draw near to them. Let's take them to the Lord in prayer and allow him to do, be for us individually and corporately as a body. Allow him to be for us what only he can be. And as we do, let us not underestimate the power of our ordinary prayers. That's very key here. Let's not underestimate the power of our ordinary prayers. Being reminded that prayer is a powerful weapon in the hands of even the humblest believer. It does not require a super saint to wield it effectively. Lord, thank you for being with us here today. Thank you for re-speaking your word to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would help us when we encounter trials of various kinds to look to you first, to above all draw near to you, cast our anxieties and cares upon you and experience your nearness and presence. Lord, we also ask that you would increase our faith to ask you to move mightily and to move in powerful ways. Lord, I confess my faith can at times be small. We confess that together. Increase our faith to ask you to move in mighty ways, breaking strongholds, holds, saving lost people that have been bound in sin for decades, praying for the sick to be healed. Lord, increase our faith. We trust you, Lord, with all these things and ask you to help us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.